Well, good to be with you guys today. It is Christmas week, which is exciting. It's also exciting because it means we made it to the end of the year. Um, now, not to break any bad news for you, it's not like January 1st, you know, COVID goes away and life is normal again, but at least we made it this far and so we can celebrate that. Um, I'm excited for today. Here's what I know. I know a lot of people are watching online this morning as they're getting ready to travel for Christmas and all that sort of thing, but we're actually going to have a lot of fun today, and so I hope you're ready. Um, I have, I just want to, you know, point something out real quick. I have a manger scene, so let's all just look at it for a second. Okay, it's here. Now look back at me. Okay, now look back at the manger scene. Okay, okay, so it's there. Now, we're not going to reference it yet, but just so we all know, we will get to it in a little bit. I know people's vantage points are different based on where you're sitting, but don't worry, you will all be able to see it. Not to give it away, or maybe it does give it away a little bit. We're talking about the birth of Jesus, and so I thought it would be interesting uh, to look at some maybe interesting celebrity births, you know, because Jesus' birth is well known, and so maybe some celebrities had some crazy things happen to them. Um, and I saw a lot, I don't, is that weird? I don't know if that's weird. But anyway, I'm going to share with you some things that I found. There was a lot of, like, people had their babies at home or in the car, and I'm like, okay, but like us mere mortals, that happens to us too sometimes, so that's not interesting. But I found two that were particularly interesting. Uh, one was Mariah Carey. When she delivered her twins with her then-husband, Nick Cannon, uh, she did them to a live concert, a 1995 live concert recording of hers. Um, and what she wanted to do is she wanted to time the actually delivery of these babies into the world at the moment where the applause happened at the end of the concert. And she also wanted Nick Cannon uh, to hold the camera and make sure the lighting was just right. So that's, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, here's another one that's well, I was going to say it's kind of funny. It's not funny, but, well, let me just read it. I, I, let me just read it. You'll, you'll, it's kind of funny. Here, Amy Poehler, so Parks and Rec, Saturday Night Live. Um, her, this is what's not funny. Her OBGYN died the night before she gave birth. Okay, so that is sad. What is funny is that she found out in the makeup room of SNL, and her co-star, John Hamm, told her as she was visibly upset over hearing the news, he said, I know this is very sad, but this is a really important show for me, so I'm going to need you to get your stuff together. So, you know, okay, wow, all right, John Hamm, you should have done that. Um, and so that was interesting to me. Those are some interesting celebrity birth stories, but today... Christian or not, we're all somewhat maybe familiar with the birth story of Jesus, and so that's what we're going to look at this morning. We are in a series called The Prophets Foretold, and so this month of December, we have been looking at various Old Testament prophecies that the coming Messiah fulfilled. Uh, so a couple weeks ago, we looked at Genesis chapter 3, uh, how from the very beginning, God's design was to make it possible for us to receive God's grace and redemption through the coming of a Messiah. Uh, last week, it was a little bit more technical. We looked at Isaiah 7, the well-known passage where in Matthew, where he says, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and name him Emmanuel. And so we saw the context of what that looked like. And so today we are going to be looking at the birth story of Jesus. And what you might find, it is not exactly the way that you often are told or think it actually happened. So that will be fun. But before we get to the birth story, let's read Micah chapter 5. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. If you don't, there's a black one somewhere around you. And if you do not own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. Uh, last week kind of felt like a big Bible study. This week will feel like a Bible study for just like five minutes, okay? Just so we can understand Micah, because, you know, we're not often as familiar with some of these Old Testament passages. If you were here last week, you'll actually find this interesting. Uh, Micah was an Old Testament prophet um, in Israel. He was a contemporary of Isaiah. And so he knew Isaiah. Last week we saw King Ahaz, who was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, who was a wicked king. 
Um, and so Micah also had interactions with Ahaz. And if you were here last week, you know that we looked at this, the problem that Judah was facing, that northern Israel or Ephraim and Syria had both rebelled against Assyria, which was the most powerful nation at the time, and said, hey, we're not going to listen to you anymore. Do what you want us to do. And they wanted Judah, right, the southern kingdom, to join them in the rebellion. Ahaz, who was the king of Judah, did not want to do so. And so Syria and Ephraim were going to come and attack them. And so he was afraid because they were going to come and attack and replace him with a puppet king and make Judah join forces with them. And so he kind of goes to the king of Assyria and he gives him money from the temple itself and gold to kind of say, hey, these people are doing this. Go attack them and save us. Um, What he should have done was trust the Lord, but he didn't. And so he kind of paid off the king of Assyria. Now, that was good in the short term, not the long term, because both Syria and Ephraim were overtaken by Assyria. So the threat was kind of abated for a while. However, Assyria was going to eventually also take over Judah, which is what's going to be happening around the time of Micah. Uh, And so what's happening here um, is that the book of Micah is both judgment and forgiveness, God's judgment on his people, but also his forgiveness and his love for them. And so uh, God is faithful to their king who is faithful to his covenant, or sorry, God is faithful to his people. He's faithful to his covenant to love and forgive them even when they abandon him and go their own way. And so Micah in the book of, of Micah is prophesying about the coming destruction. So this takes place a few decades after the Ahaz and Israel incident where Israel, Judah, is now also going to be overtaken by Assyria. And so he's prophesying the coming destruction while at the same time speaking about God's future deliverance, even in the midst of their unfaithfulness, which leads us to Micah 5. And here's what Micah chapter 5, verse 1 says. It says this. Now, daughter, talking about Judah, the southern kingdom, who is under attack, you slash yourself in grief. A siege is set against us. They are striking the judge of Israel on the cheek with a rod. So again, Micah is saying that Assyria is a pending attack on Judah uh, and both Jerusalem and the surrounding cities in Judah will be successful. Um, Israel is weak and there's nothing that they can do to stop it. Now, this took place around 701 BC. So if you're interested in the historical timeline of things, that's when it happens. Uh, When it says strike on the cheek, this was a Hebrew idiom um, that basically meant humiliation. Like you're too defenseless to stop it. So they're just going to slap you around. That's basically what is going to happen. And then verse 2, it says this, but in our translation, it doesn't say, it doesn't, it's the, in the CSB that we have, it doesn't say but, but other translations it does. It says, but uh, Bethlehem Epaphrath, uh, you are a small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler of Israel over me or for me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. And so what he's doing here is he's kind of reversing the situation from the looming defeat that is going to happen, but at the same time, uh, the the Messiah who's going to come is going to give them a future triumph over the kings and the rulers of the world that are going to subjugate them. And so Bethlehem, Epatharha, uh, that is just kind of the district that Bethlehem is in. Um, It's interesting to note that he's saying that this Messiah who will one day redeem you is going to come from Bethlehem. Now, uh, Bethlehem was a very insignificant town. It was a very small town and nothing really uh, significant happened in that city. However, if you're familiar with the Old Testament kings of Israel, if not, that's okay. But if you are, you might know the story of King David. Uh, King David was the second king of Israel um, and he was the one that was going to succeed Saul, the first king. Now, what was interesting when basically they told Jesse, David's dad, to kind of line up his sons and that is when the, uh, we're gonna, they're going to find his successor. He didn't even bring David. David was the youngest of eight sons. He was deemed insignificant 
significant. Of course, that was the one that was chosen to succeed King Saul. Now, what's interesting is once David became king, of course, he moved to Jerusalem, and all future kings were also born in Jerusalem. From that time on, no king was not born in Jerusalem, and yet what Micah is saying is that this future king, just like King David, will also be born in Bethlehem, not in the powerful capital from which you would assume he would come. And then verse 3, he says, Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of the ruler's brothers will return to the people of Israel. So Israel will be abandoned. What we know historically is after they were overtaken by Assyria, they never had another king. And so they are uh, anticipating and anxiously awaiting this future Messiah that's supposed to save them and make everything Right. Uh, And so what Micah is saying here is that's going to happen. You're never going to have another king until this future Messiah comes who will unite all of his people under his kingship. And then verse 4 and 5, the last part of Micah will read, he then says this. He, talking about this Messiah, Savior, King, will stand and shepherd them, his people, in the strength of the Lord, in the majestic name of the Lord, his God. They will live securely. For then his greatness will extend to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. In other words, this Messiah king that is coming coming, will stand, will shepherd, will lead in the strength and the majesty of the Lord himself, and those in his kingdom will be secure, and he will be peace and offer peace for all the earth, right? So this is the prophecy saying that where this Messiah is going to come from. Now, before we get into the Christmas story, uh, one of the things that I think that we're supposed to glean and learn from that Micah is setting us up for as we look at Jesus is the idea or the reality that peace came from a place and a person no one expected. Peace came from a place, Bethlehem, and a person, that no one expected from a poor family, not a well-to-do family, not a family from or in Jerusalem, from a place and a person. This is not going to go the way that you assume or you think that it's going to go. Now, I don't know in your life if that has ever happened to you. If you've ever had something good or significant happen to you that was that was from a person or a place or a thing that you didn't expect. Um, This happened to me recently. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, I kind of shared with you my Xbox saga, where I decided, uh, you know, for the first time in like 15 or 16 years, I was going to buy a video game system. And I decided this in August, and so I was really excited, and they mentioned they were going to have a new Xbox coming out in November, and pre-orders were going to be in September, and I was like, perfect timing. Well, I'll just wait a few weeks and do the pre-order thing, and of course, I failed miserably, and then I waited till November 10th when it came came out and I didn't get one again. I tried online. I failed miserably. And then uh, the next couple of weeks, um, they would, you know, a Walmart or various, you know, well-known retailers would sell the Xbox and I would always try and I like set my alarm and I would never get it. Right. And so I know many of you are like, what happened? Right. I haven't been able to sleep. Did Dylan get his Xbox? Well, let me tell you what happened, okay? Um, I started following this Twitter account. I think it's Wario64 um, because he tweets all of these like video game deals, which I don't care about. But every once in a while, he'll tweet like this website has Xboxes. And so I'm following him. And every time he does this, I don't get it. Like I'm too late, whatever. Um, but last Friday, so not this past Friday, but the Friday before, it happened. I was on my phone. A few minutes after Wario64 tweets, new Xbox. And so I clicked the link. It was from this random retailer, Ant Online. I had never heard of them before. So I'm like, well, I'm like a few minutes late. I'm sure it's gone. So I'm on my phone. I click it, and it like says add to cart, and it actually works. And I was like, 
is this like, is this happening here? And so I put my phone down, I got my computer out, and I go online and it works. I put all my credit card information. I'm like, I'm actually gonna, and this isn't like gonna ship in two months. It's like gonna ship tomorrow if you get it. And so I'm like about to hit submit. I'm like, wait, let me, I've never actually heard of this place. Let me like, is this real? So I go Google it and there's like some reviews and it had like a really good rating, but it also had this person that was charged three times and couldn't get a refund. And I'm like, hmm, should I do this or not? I kind of figured if it didn't work, I was just going to dispute it with my credit card company and say, I didn't order this. It was fraud. and get my money back. Um, and so I ordered it. And lo and behold, guess what happened on Tuesday? It came. Let me show you a picture, baby, right here. This is me on Tuesday afternoon. Okay, thank you. Thank you. It was awesome. I debated if I should say this out loud, but I was told it's okay. If you play Xbox, uh, my gamer tag is Grim Preacher 177 Okay, so a little irony there. So you can find me. We can be friends, and we can... I don't know, do things and play football and kill zombies together. Um, but anyway, that's what happened. Now, it came from a place I didn't think, Ant Online. Who knew? I don't even know if, it's, if it still exists, but it existed for the week that I bought it, okay? Now, all that to say, uh, Jesus is a little bit better than an Xbox, all right? I'll concede. But the point is the same. I got an Xbox from a place I had, did not expect, and Jesus came. The Messiah came from a place that we would not have expected, right? Which leads us to the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2. And so we'll be in Luke chapter 2. What I want to invite you to do is to turn there. Um, We are going to fix the Christmas story. And I don't want you to just to take my word for it. I want you to see what I'm doing here because I might crush some dreams in the process, okay? So this leads us to the birth of the Messiah. And I'm really excited about this. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, here is what it says, if you want to follow along. It says, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the whole empire should be registered, the whole Roman Empire. The first registration took place while Quirinus was governing Syria, which was the part of Jerusalem and Israel where they were, where, uh, the, Israel was a part of. So everyone went to be registered to each his own town. Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the family line of David, to be registered with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him tightly in cloth and laid him in a manger, because there was no guest room available to them." No guest room available to them. So this is the Christmas story. Now, I want to fix a few things, and I want to start by pointing out what it says in verse 6. While they were there, the time came to her to give birth. So here's typically what we have um, in our typical nativity set. You have all these pieces, and it's kind of like, here's what happened the night Jesus was born. And we have this assumption that they traveled to uh, Bethlehem, and they happened to get there right in time, and then the baby came out. Um, That's not what happened. Uh, What we see happening is they traveled, and while they were there. Now, Bethlehem, or Nazareth to Bethlehem, would have been a couple of days, if not a couple of a week's journey to get there. Uh, If Mary was about to give birth, they would not have made the journey. Uh, And so they they got there in plenty of time. That's the first thing. The second thing to understand is that the Middle East, even today, uh, is extremely hospitable, but even more so in that culture where you had to be, right? When you traveled, you needed to have places of respite and rescue. uh, And so people were very hospitable and kind to one another because they also needed people to be hospitable and kind to them. Uh, And so the kind of the story goes is that when they got there, there was no place for them to stay. And so they kind of got thrown into a barn or some people say a cave. The problem with that is, again, 
that had been there for a few days, a few weeks, if not a few months by the time she gave birth. The second problem is that they went to stay with his family, right? His family is from Bethlehem, and they would have had relatives there. Now, even if they might have not been too excited about the fact that Mary was pregnant, they would not have thrown them out onto the street, They would have given them a place to stay, which is why in verse uh, 7, when it says there was no guest room available to them, I'm not a translation scholar. Some translations say um, there was no room at the end. I think the no guest room is a better translation. Uh, What's likely would have been happening here is that they would have stayed in in a house of a relative. Depending on the size of the house, some some houses didn't even have guest rooms, or some did, but they would be like on a loft where you'd have to climb onto a ladder. And just think about it, when it's time to give birth, there's no room for that. You need an open space where the midwives and other women can help out. What likely happened is that Jesus was born in the house, in, in a relative's house, with midwives there and with people helping. Now, you might think, well, what do we do with the manger, right? The feeding trough. Well, uh, what happened back in those days is that at night, you would bring your, fa- your, your animals in your house because it was cold in some parts of the year and also because they could get stolen. And so at night, you would bring any animals that you had into a house um, and you would have a feeding trough built in onto the side of your wall, uh, which means that Jesus would have actually been born in a house with people present and placed in a manger in the house. And so here's what we're going to do. Let's get this uh, manger scene, the nativity set on the screen so we all can see, okay? So we're going to fix this a little bit. The first thing we're going to do is here we got all the pieces. We got Jesus, we got the angels, we got the shepherds, the wise men, the animals, all that sort of thing. What we see in the first half of Luke is this. It does not say they were born in a barn, and actually, historically, we don't have reason to believe that that actually was going to happen, and in fact, on top of that, Bethlehem was such a small town, it probably didn't even have anything resembling a hotel or an inn, and so we are going to take away the barn. Barn, goodbye. That wasn't there, all right? So again, we want a historically accurate nativity set here. All right, so there is no uh, barn. Now, the second thing that we want to point out here is that although they brought animals into the house at night, they would not have left the animals in the house during a birth. They would have put them outside and have somebody watch them uh, because there wouldn't have been room again for all those people and all those animals. And so the animals, goodbye. There we go. So here's where we stand right now. We got Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, the wise men, and the shepherds, but the, the, uh, uh, the barn would not have been there, and there not, would, have been, not, would have been animals actually present at the birth. Okay, we okay? Anyone's dreams crushed yet? No. All right, let's keep going because I'm not done yet. Verse 8, Luke chapter 2, verse 8, and then it says this. In the same region, so somewhere in the region of Bethlehem, not Bethlehem itself, but somewhere close, Uh, Shepherds were staying out in the fields and keeping watch at night over the flock. Then an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you who is the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. Suddenly there was a multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to the people he favors. 
When the angels had left them and returned to heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go straight to Bethlehem and see what has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, a couple of things. We'll pull up the major scene again uh, that we see happening here in Luke chapter 2, the second half. We see a couple of things. First, uh, we see that an angel appears to the shepherds. Um, now, what, what this means is they, had, they were told to travel to Bethlehem, which means they weren't actually in Bethlehem the night that this happened. Uh, and it, it, we, again, we don't know exactly where they were. And again, they had sheep and everything. They couldn't just like peace out. Like they got to do some stuff with the things that they have. Um, it likely took them a day or two to actually get to the house of where they were staying, where Jesus was actually um, born. Now, as a side note, if we just think of like the traditional nativity set, like it's kind of weird. Right? Mary had just given birth, and we got like a house full of people just like having a party and hanging out. Like, I don't know um, that that's, you know, what exactly that you want to do. And so what we see happening here is that the shepherds themselves would not have been there the very night that, the, that Jesus was born. They would have had to, did to travel at least a day or two to get to Bethlehem to find the child. Again, it's a small town, so it probably wouldn't be hard to find a newborn baby, and they would see him in a manger, which would be the sign that this is the Messiah. And so again, if we're looking at the historical accuracy of the nativity set on Christmas night, or as we come to know it, were the shepherds there? There you go. Shepherds. Goodbye. Now, we're not done yet. We're not done yet because here's another thing. We have this angel hanging out. Where is the angel in the Christmas story? Is it in Bethlehem or is it with the uh, shepherds? It's with the shepherds. Good job. Some of you listening. So angel, you are gone. This is, like, this is not looking good for us right now. The angel is gone. The shepherds are gone. They were not actually in Bethlehem the night that Jesus was born. Now, before we continue, I want to point out something here about the significance of what is going on in the Christmas story, because sometimes we can read this and we can miss what is going on, what's happening here. Uh, the significance of the shepherds in this story is that they are of low class. The shepherds are, are low class. Uh, they were not obviously in an upwardly mobile society. Uh, and so this wasn't like if you asked a kid in Jerusalem when he was born what he wanted to be, I mean, he probably wouldn't have any options. But if he did, he would not say shepherd. He would not say shepherd. And so, again, if you look back in Luke chapter 2, uh, the shepherds were, were there. And so they're low class. They are non-influential. They are not the type of people um, that you would assume would be the first hearers of some, some miraculous news. Now, if you couple that with the first people who were told about Jesus' resurrection, which were women. And again, in that culture, they were kind of viewed as second-class citizens. Their testimony could not hold up in court. Um, they were not equal to men in any stretch of the imagination at all. They were the first people, again, visited by an angel to be told that the, Jesus had resurrected and the Messiah was no longer in the tomb. And so what we see happening in Micah is coming to fruition. The Messiah is from a no-name place, uh, from a no-name family, and he first appears to people who you and I would not expect him to appear to. Now, what this means for us is really good news. This means that no one is too insignificant for God. Right, The Christmas story and even the story of the resurrection points to the fact that no matter who you are or where you live or what you've done or your ethnicity or your gender or your socioeconomic status, none of those things are relevant to the fact of whether or not God loves you and cares for you. One of the amazing and unique things about Christianity is that it's not just about feel-good sentiments. Right, It's not just about God loves you and be a good person and do right thing and spread love in the world. Right, The good news about Christianity is that it actually has real life application. 
In other words, it is not simply feel-good philosophy without practical demonstration, right? Feel-good philosophy without practical demonstration is useless. The book that we follow, the God that we serve is not a God that says, I love you and you better trust me and I hope I'm right. He's that he actually came historically into time that you and I have to do something with Jesus. We can accept him or we can reject him. But again, it's not just like, I hope that this makes you feel better, that we worship a king who actually came. Right? No one is too insignificant to God, and he came and he showed us that I'm not just going to talk about the fact that I love you. I'm going to show you that I love you. And everything we do and believe hinges on whether or not this event took place. Did the Messiah himself come into the world, or did he not? And if he did, it changes everything for every one of us. And one of the things that it means is that no one is too insignificant for God. That he loves you so much that he came. He first appeared to shepherds, and then when he resurrected uh, to women to show us that God cares for all of us, and there are no second-class citizens in his kingdom. And so let's continue. Uh, We'll flip over to one more place, Matthew chapter 2, to see what happens next in the birth story. Again, so that you know that I'm not making anything up, I encourage you to flip over with me. Matthew chapter 2, it says this, and we'll see what happens to our remaining survivors of our nativity set. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. After Jesus was born, now I want to stop just for a second. Does it say the night that he was born? All right, wise men, just get ready. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, uh, King Herod, he was the, the Roman governor of, the, uh, of that part of Rome at the time of Jesus' birth. But wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. Now, as a side note, really quickly, these wise men or these magi, these astrologers were kind of religious leaders and people in Babylon from the east. Um, and they were traveling to Jerusalem because they had saw a sign in the sky. Now, again, we're not exactly told how they know. Again, a lot of uh, Jews were uh, exiled and lived in Babylon, and so they were probably somewhat familiar with the various religious ideas and ideologies and belief systems, and so they were probably somewhat familiar, obviously, with this sign that's supposed to appear when the Messiah comes, and so some of them see this thing happening, and so they they uh, decide to travel to Jerusalem to figure out what is going on. Now, Jerusalem from Babylon would have been at least a month or not or two months journey. So it, took, it would have taken them at least a month or two to even get to Jerusalem. And as a side note, we won't read it this morning. Later in Matthew chapter 2, we see that Herod wants to kill all baby boys in the Bethlehem region that are two years old and younger, um, which again means that this took place somewhere between the birth of Jesus and up to two years, but it certainly did not take place on the night that Jesus was born because they had to travel to Jerusalem first, which took at least a month or two, and then to Bethlehem, okay? So wise men, we're not done with them yet. So I'm just going to kind of move them to the edge. We're not done with them yet, so you can hang out. Even though they were not there the night that Jesus was born, it would have taken them a while to get there. And so here's what happens. They travel to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 2, uh, let's see, verse 3, we'll pick up the story. When King Herod heard this, when the wise men came and told them what had happened, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where this Christ would be born. And so he gathers some of these Jewish religious leaders to see like what's going on here. And here's what they tell him. And this is what we read from Micah 5 this morning. Verse 5, it says this. 
And Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Now, what's interesting here um, is that this is why, as a side note, Herod is so afraid. This is why Herod is so afraid. And in fact, this is why many people were disappointed with Jesus, right? Because they were assuming that when this Messiah came, he would reestablish his kingdom on earth and make uh, Israel great again, make them safe again, and make them kind of a world power. And so Herod hears this, and he's afraid for his job, right? He's like, I've got to do something with this child, which is ultimately why he wanted to kill him, because he didn't want this Messiah to be king over him. Uh, And so many Jews were disappointed with Jesus, and they assumed that he would establish an earthly kingdom. Now, what do we know? When Jesus is on trial with Pilate before he's to be crucified, he actually tells Pilate in John 18 that my kingdom is not of this world, right? He is going to return a second time and reestablish his kingdom over the heavens and the earth, but his first coming was the opportunity for us to experience the grace and mercy of God. What this means, again, just as a side note, is that the New Testament makes way more sense In light of the Old Testament, you don't have to be familiar with passages like Micah and Isaiah to understand the story, but it helps. And I think it points to something that we've been talking about even before this Christmas season, um, as we've been going through the book of Exodus. And so I'll just repeat it again, that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. What is happening here is that scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. It's all about God's redemptive love in us or in the world and how he is going to rescue us. And so all of these things make a lot more sense when we see scripture through this light. This is why some of the religious leaders, and we won't get into it, but part of the reason why the religious leaders may not have actually gone down to Bethlehem is because at this time in Israel's history, the high priests and a lot of the various religious leaders that were in charge were actually there illegitimately. And so they don't want this to change because they're in a position that they should not be in. But all this makes more sense. Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And of course, even the, even the birth story has Old Testament implications. And so we'll continue to read the second part of Matthew chapter 2 of verse, through verse 12. And here's what it says. It says, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, report back to me so that I can go and worship him. Of course, that's a lie, but he didn't tell them that. He actually wanted to kill the child. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him, or they honored him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country. They returned to their own country. And so this leads us to the concluding part of our historical nativity scene. So let's go ahead and pull this back up. Uh, what I want to do before I get rid of the shepherds is I just want to say one other thing. Um, this, the scripture doesn't actually say that the star appeared the night that Jesus was born, right? It says it appeared at some point, but we don't know. And it was still there uh, when the shepherds, or sorry, when the wise men got to uh, Bethlehem. And in fact, reason to believe that the star might not have actually been there the night Jesus was born is because when the uh, angels appear to the shepherds, right, the night Jesus was actually born, they give them a sign. And the sign is not a star. 
The sign is that the baby would be born and placed in a manger. And so just as a side note, I don't have a star to get rid of, but there's debate that the star actually was there the exact night that Jesus was born. It's all that to say, the, the fact before we get rid of the wise men, why do we have three? Well, we actually don't know, again, how many wise men there are. Uh, the fact that there are three gifts has given birth to the tradition at some point that there were three wise men, but we have no, many there, how many, we have no idea how many there were. In fact, there probably were more than three. However, however many they were, they certainly were not there the night that Jesus was born. And so wise men... You are gone. And this, my friends, is still not the historical nativity set. Here's what's going on here. You think we're good, right? Well, if you live in the United States of America, which I assume all of us currently do that are here and are watching online, uh, we have a problem. Um, most, I don't know, 90% of our nativity scenes have a little bit of an issue with the fact uh, that Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, um, were an eth- they were an minor- uh, ethnic minority. Uh, they were not white. Um, my Mary, Joseph, and Jesus is white, which means you guys don't even make the nativity set. Here you go. Here it is, an American historically accurate nativity set right here, right? Now, I'm not saying take down your nativity sets. I'm just saying this is what it would have looked like. Now, uh, for those of you, I'm giving you a bone here. For those of you that are like actually like Christmas but are Grinches and don't put up any Christmas lights in your yard for us to look at and enjoy, you can say, I have a historically accurate nativity set in my front yard right here. You can't see it because I couldn't find a non-white Jesus, but that's, that's it right there. That is your historically accurate nativity set. Ain't none of it real. Ain't none of it real. So you can leave it up at your house, but I'm just saying... That's not what it looked like the night Jesus was born. Now, all that to be said, hopefully that was maybe enlightening for you, I don't know. Uh, All that to be said, the question then comes to this. As we look at our non-historical nativity set, what does this mean for us? What are the implications of what is happening here? Or maybe put another way, how should we respond to this? To this Messiah coming, to Herod being threatened, to the Israelite leaders not being sure what to do, to we read the story, how should we respond? Well, I think... Uh, there are three ways, in particular, we can respond to the story of Jesus being born. The first is this, that we can be threatened. We can be threatened. Now, uh, we might not say this out loud because it might sound kind of weird, um, but like Herod, uh, we can actually be threatened by what Jesus has done or what he's coming represents, right? It means that we are no longer in control, that we are not king over everything, that we are not king over our lives. Again, now, no one uh, should tell us how to live our life or what to do. And so we may not say that we're actually threatened by the birth of Jesus, but particularly um, in our very hyper-individualistic culture, wherever I say or whatever I feel is true, to have something over me that says, no, 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 there's actually something true beyond just like your feelings can be threatening. Right? It can be threatening to be told that you're not in control of everything, that your life is not just up to you and what you decide, that there is something outside of you, which, by the way, loves you and cares for you, but that is actually in control of everything, and it's not you, and it is not me. And so one of our responses to the Christmas story is to simply be threatened by it. Another response is that we can be indifferent, right? This probably is maybe the more popular response compared to being threatened, but we can be indifferent. We could say that that's nice and, that, and that's cool and all, but like I don't really know how it impacts me, and so I'm just going to kind of live my own life as if it doesn't really matter. What's interesting, and again, I don't know the answer to this. Maybe I can do some more studying and report back. Um, but what's interesting here is that the wise men, they go to Jerusalem. The Israelite leaders know something is up because they confirm with the wise men that, that this Messiah might actually, actually come from Bethlehem. And yet, 
We are not told that any Jewish leaders actually make the, tra- the distance to travel to Bethlehem to find out for themselves what is going on. Yet again, they knew something was up, and so they were different. And so that could be some of our response to the birth and the coming of Messiah. Uh, it's not that we're against it. It's not that we don't like it, and we might even be moved by this idea that God came for us, but we're indifferent to it. It doesn't really make a difference to us. It doesn't impact how we live. It doesn't impact what we say or what we do or what our allegiance to is in our life. And so we can be indifferent. We can be like, that's cool, but it doesn't change us. Or thirdly, the third way we could respond is that we could seek and worship Him. That, that's the third response. So when we read this story and we understand its implications, instead of being threatened or being different, we could actually allow it to change our life and to seek and worship this Messiah who came for the world for our peace and our good and our grace. And so here's what I, I, I want to do, under, understanding this idea. But this is an option, that, that if we actually see what's going on here, it changes how we live. I want to, for a second here, Put back this, main, this non-historically accurate manger scene to, to, to show us something. So let's just say this is no longer a barn. This is the world, okay? This is the world. And uh, here we go. We'll put Joseph, Mary, and Jesus back because Jesus can't come without, you know, parents. Oh, I dropped a donkey. <clears throat> I got it. So here, here's the world, right? And here's Jesus. So he comes into the world. Now, what's interesting about Jesus is that he came for a variety of people. So we see, for example... Um, that he came for the seekers, right? So let's say the shepherds. Shepherds come into the world. They actually desire, they want to know, they want to worship, they want to be in awe by this Messiah. And so we see that Jesus, when he comes, he comes for the seekers. He comes for those of us that actually desire him and want to grow closer to him. But that's not the only people he comes for. He also comes for the non-believers. And we'll just represent with these wise men. These wise men uh, did not start following Jesus. They did not give their lives or their allegiance to them. Again, they revered him. They honored him. They thought there was something special about the Jewish tradition, and so they want to pay their respects. But they did not worship him. And yet Jesus still came for them. And Jesus comes for all of us. For those of us that maybe are not quite sure if Jesus is who he claimed to be, Jesus also came not just for the seekers, but he also came for the non-believers, for those who would not yet, may not yet know him or to those that would reject him. But he didn't just come for the seekers, and he didn't just come for the non-believers. He actually also came for those that wanted to kill him. And so I'm sorry, Angel, she'll take our place for Herod, so we'll put Herod in the mix here. <laughs> Herod wanted to kill him, right? What happened when Jesus was betrayed on the cross? He is praying over the people and saying, God, Father, forgive them. They, do, they know not what they are doing. He comes for the seekers. He comes for the doubters. He even comes for those who are threatened and want nothing to do with him. And I think this is just good news for us to remember that if you or maybe you have a family member or a friend who is very uh, antagonistic or has a lot of animus for Jesus and Christianity, you need to understand that God still loves them, that God still cares for them, and that God might still be using you to display his love to them through you, that God comes for the seekers, the doubters, and even those that he wants that want to kill him, which means the ultimate good news, that Jesus also came for you. He came for the seekers, the doubters, and those that would be threatened, and he would want to, he also came for you. And this is the good news of the gospel here. The gospel that God would come, that God would be with us to give his life for us. We celebrate the birth of the Messiah, not just because God came, because of what he was going to do, to stand in the place of Israel and to stand in the place of you and me, to give us the opportunity to see and to revere and to understand and to receive the grace and mercy that we do not 
deserve. The good news of the gospel is not about you doing good things and you trying really hard. It's about God who has come to do for you and for me what we could not do for ourselves. And so in closing, here's what this means for us and kind of the main idea as we read this Christmas story that we need to take and we need to understand. And that, that is that God reveals himself to those who would seek him. God reveals himself. I mean, this is what this is. Again, this is not just feel-good philosophy that God loves you, but it is practical and it is demonstrated that God came on our behalf to love us and to give us grace and to give us mercy and to give us redemption, that he reveals himself to those who seek him. Now, as you seek him and as you ask questions and as you pursue him, this does not mean that you still will not have doubts. Um, This does not mean that you will have everything go well in your life. Uh, This does not mean that you will not experience suffering because in this life, this this marks all of us. And 2020 has marked all of us collectively as a year of suffering. But what it does mean is that God cares for you and that God loves you and that he invites you to come and to see and to experience him. He reveals himself to those who seek him. And so if you're with us today, if you're watching, you need to understand this is not an accident. This isn't just like, well, it's Christmas, and so maybe I should check this thing out and kind of hear the Christmas story, that it's real and it's applicable, that God loves you, that he cares. And he offers you grace and forgiveness. And as we seek him and as we fall short and as we blow it and as we ask questions and as we kind of live our life and things don't always go the way that we want, the coming of Jesus undeniably means that in the midst of our doubts and our questions, we do know this. We may not know why certain things happen in our life the way that they do, but we do know it's not because God doesn't care. Because if God didn't care, he wouldn't have come. God reveals himself to those who seek him. And the Christmas story, in the midst of all the suffering that we're experiencing right now, is to be reminded and to be encouraged that God came and that he loves you and he's inviting you to come and experience him. Let's pray.